Welcome to the Willing to Listen South Bruce Proud podcast. Willing to Listen is a grassroots volunteer group based in South Bruce, Ontario, that is dedicated to thoroughly investigating multiple aspects of Canada's proposed deep geological repository for spent nuclear fuel. I'm Sheila Wittick, and I'm so excited to have you join me as we delve into this controversial project. On today's episode, I am joined by Dr. Neil Alexander. He wrote an article called 10 Reasons Why the Nuclear Industry Cannot Bury Its Used Fuel Problem. And in today's episode, we are going to uh, investigate the 11 reasons why. Thanks so much for coming on today. That's awesome. No, no problem. One of, one of my favorite subjects. So always oh, happens. Good. Yeah, one, one of mine too lately. Just so that our listeners can kind of find out a little bit about you, can you give us about a, a bit of an introduction about who you are and what you do? I'm a nuclear generalist. So I've done a whole variety of different jobs in, in a number of different countries. Um, a lot of them to do with uh, decommissioning and radioactive waste management, where I've run companies, not done a lot actually on for the nuclear industry, but I've run companies in the UK and in Canada that deal with radioactive waste management for people outside of the conventional nuclear industry. So people like hospitals, that are using medical isotopes, industries that use um, radioactivity extensively to monitor and um, carry out quality assurance checks, things like that, disposing of things that, that are used in, in our personal life, like smoke detectors, which contain radioactivity. So uh, that's where I have a, a developed a bit of a generalist's understanding of radioactive materials, what their consequences are, where they're used, how we deal with them. And I've also run organizations that produce medical isotopes, and I've done work within the nuclear industry, running small suppliers to the nuclear industry, like at one point I managed Rolls-Royce's engineering facility in Canada, nuclear engineering. Um, and I'm now I'm now a consultant who does studies for people based upon the, the experience that I've developed in the industry. So nuclear generalist, I think, is the is the general comment. My other life my other line of business I should mention is in communications. So um, you know I do a lot of work on helping people develop proposals, grant applications, improve their presentations, and really to think about how they what they're trying to communicate and how they're communicating. So those, those two kind of come together on the work that I do on nuclear communications. Okay. So the reason why um, I've reached out to you, and I'm so thankful that you have agreed to come on here and uh, chat with us for a little bit, is I stumbled across your article called 10 Reasons Why the Nuclear Industry Cannot Bury Its Used Fuel Problem. Um, and I'm wondering if you could just give us a quick kind of reasoning behind why you wrote that article just before we start breaking it down? It was my attempt to look at different ways of communicating about deep geological depositories. The people of Canada have decided that, that the appropriate way to deal with the used fuel that we have produced is a deep geological depository, and I completely agree with them. It's a difficult balance of it not being urgent, but that it's our responsibility to do it. We created the waste. We should be dealing with the problem. So although you can keep delaying it, I don't think we should. I don't think it's down to us to deal with it. 
And as a sort of corollary to that, there is the fact that that needs to be done while we still have a developed society that is capable of doing it. Because yes, you, people are right, we could continue looking after it, but at some point we have to accept that the society as we know it will end, right? To believe mm -hmm. otherwise has an incredible degree of arrogance to it. And as society starts to collapse, then dealing with new fuel may not be the highest thing on our mind. So it is the safest thing is to get it done now. You know, I wanted to see what I could do to help people understand that it was an appropriate thing to do. It wasn't a scary thing to do in the way it was being presented, and it was the right thing to do, you know, from a moralistic point of view. I find I tackle that, you know, what happens if we don't have a working society? I tackle that question a lot also. I find people who are big proponents of rolling stewardship or opponents of DGRs, you know, I, I'm always asking what happens when unity is no longer here, society doesn't exist anymore, and we don't have a regulator and all of those things, you know, who's going to take care of the fuel? Who's going to do that? Now I always use, given COVID-19 and you know, not to downplay COVID-19, it's been horrible. What if the next pandemic is killing 50% of the people who get virus or the disease or 75%? Like, what if we have something with an incredible mortality rate that wipes through the society? And the people working at the plants, at the nuclear plants, are essential workers. We've been working the whole time. If we had an outbreak of a really deadly pandemic, it wouldn't take much for there to be no one left who knows how to look after the waste. You know, and those are those those seem to be doomsday prophecies to some people, you know, that that's just reaching for straws. But, you know, we've seen a real pandemic here now. And I think it's important that we we recognize that it's a real possibility. And, you know, we need to plan for the events happening that make it impossible for us to watch the fuel. And you're right. And, and, and that's where these things get really difficult to talk about, because they they have other connotations that people struggle with. Our own mortality and the uh, mortality of our civilizations are, are very difficult things to get your heads around and not very positive images to create, all yeah. those circumstances that we have to deal with. But my concern is, you know, perhaps a less doomsday one than that, and that is that, you know, politics changes. And we, we work on the basis that Canada is a stable country and has prime ministers that you know we may or may not like but are generally rational human beings. That's not the same in a lot of other countries and, and I think recently we have seen some examples of how dramatic the swings can be, um, yeah. how divisive um, some leaders of nations can become in a very short period of time. So you know, the, the, a large part of my discussion is about how things on the surface happen very quickly and things underground happen very slowly. Not, mm -hmm. not just physical processes, but things like politics. Right. The politics of deep rock do not change very significantly. Yeah. In, in human timescales. Yeah, there's so many reasons I feel personally strongly about a DGR. Whether or not I want one in South Bruce is um, not really discovered yet because we don't have all the information. 
So just to dig into your article here a little bit, what I'd kind of like to do is just chat briefly about each of the 10 points, just to kind of break it down for people. So it's the list, just so people, if they're not familiar with the article, I'll just read this a little bit. It's a list of the top myths or conflations or imaginations that seem to contribute to the metaphorical used fuel problem. So number one was because something that has a half-life of hundreds of thousands of years it follows that it must be kept out of the environment for hundreds of thousands of years. So what about like what about that is is mythical? What about that is is not accurate? Well, there I was trying to address, address the fact that people get obsessed with the half-life and the fact that some of these things are going to be radioactive for a long period of time. And you know, going back to a hundred thousand years, saying, well, you know, it's going to be radioactive for a hundred thousand years. So what I was trying to point out is all, all of that per se is an irrelevance. Like we have to manage the radioactivity, I'm not questioning that, but completely focused on the half-life is, is not the point. You've got to look at whether it will be safe or not. So if something stayed radioactive forever, but could never get into the environment, it doesn't matter, right? Right. And, uh, and I tried to reinforce that argument with points about the fact that radioactivity is natural, it's around at the moment, and the natural radioactivity is going to last a lot longer than the radioactivity in used fuel, right? Yeah. So potassium-40 uh, has, what is it, I, I'll get my numbers wrong, but I think it's a 1.8 billion year half-life, right? So it's in our bodies, it's going to be around forever. I'm not going around suggesting that we bury everybody because they've got long-lived radioactivity in them. No, the, the, the natural uranium, the, the ores already have um, radioactivity that has a long heart life. So, yeah. so that's one part of it. And the other, the other part is that you know we use radioactivity all the time. We get, nobody's going around looking at their smoke detector that's just outside their bedroom door, going that ought to be buried. You know, deep yeah. Um, yeah. No, nobody's avoiding buying bananas at the grocery store. Nobody's avoiding buying bananas. Which are not as radioactive as potatoes, by the way. Um, yeah, I I heard that once that a bag of potato chips is so much worse in terms of radioactivity than bananas. I'm like, oh, everyone always compares things to bananas, you know. And and I I think sometimes too it 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 is viewed as a oh they're trying to downplay the seriousness of it, but I feel like people don't actually understand it. Bananas are actually radioactive. Like they're they're actually radioactive. It's it's for real. It's not like made up to downplay radiation. It's but, a real but, thing. Brazil nuts are so radioactive that if they were on a nuclear site, they would have to be disposed of as a low level waste. If anybody, if the nuclear industry was producing them, really, depending upon your regulations, that that was. And I, I haven't confirmed that story. But I that better was, make sure I never take them to work in my lunch. Uh, in the UK, we had to have special special dispensation to use fertilizer on the lawns because the fertilizer would have had to have been disposed of as a no Wow, wow. Yeah, it, it just, like, it, it is true, right? Radiation is everywhere. It, you can't escape from radiation. That's a whole other topic that I can talk about forever. And you made a good point there. I, I wasn't endeavouring to trivialise. I was trying to get people to focus on the fact that you've got to look at the consequences, not just on the half-life, the, half the times, 
that everybody gets totally focused on and says, oh, 100,000 years. That is not the point. The point is, can you keep it safe? Can you keep it out of the environment in a way that never causes any damage to the environment? That is okay. the issue. Half-life plays into it, but it's only a small play into it. And to try and get away from these people are just get obsessed with the fact that this has a has a time to it. The other part of it, of course, and again, not trying to trivialize it, just trying to point out the issues. We deal with lots of things that are toxic, and they're toxic forever. They never decay, right? Yeah. But we don't get obsessed about them going, <gasps> we can't use you know, lead in our in a lead acid battery because the lead will never cease yeah. to be um, And uh, lately, I've been trying to do a little more research too on geological repositories for other forms of hazardous waste. You know, those wastes that do not ever become less hazardous. Um, and they, you know, they do exist all over the world. We're already burying hazardous waste everywhere. It's just yeah. not radioactive to think That's that, right. you know, People claim that a DGR is an experiment and all these things, but it's not really. We already bury hazardous waste. It's just this is radioactive. And in fact, this is safer to bury because it gets less dangerous the longer it sits there. Well, and, and we are doing something that's different to anything done before, and that's we're taking it out of the gist and, and putting it into deep rock where things happen very slowly, whereas... All the other toxic wastes that we bury, we throw into the geosphere and hope for the best. Yeah. So you, you might argue that this is possibly the first real example of responsible stewardship. It's the only industry that's actually responsible for waste it produces. They can tell you where every fuel bundle is. You know, they track it from when it's made to when it goes in the reactor to when it's in the pool, from when it's in dry storage. They can tell you everything that that bundle has done and a lot of people well, aren't aware of that there's a lot of waste that isn't used fuel so so yes. we've got to be really careful to talk about used fuel we know where the used fuel is yes and some of that used fuel goes for destructive testing and gets cut up and ends up in other waste so it's not absolutely true that we know where every fuel bundle is right right but does that make a difference no it doesn't make a difference we know where nearly all of it it's just that, that I, 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 I like to be absolutely precise and correct in what I say. I may get some things wrong, but my intention is always to make sure that they're right. So we'll go on to number two, that the used fuel problem has not been solved because it is too technically challenging. Yeah, and, and so, you know, that, that this is another popular statement of the anti-nuclear brigade that says, um, you know, that, that we have never solved the problem with used fuel. And the observation I'm making here is that the real reason we haven't solved the problem is that it isn't much of a problem. So, you know, used fuel exists today. We've been producing it for 17 years now. It has never caused anyone any problems. Had it caused anyone any problems, we would have had a solution. But people can always delay because there isn't any immediate risk. We manage right. it, we manage it successfully. It's not a big problem. So the ironic reason why we haven't got geological repositories is that we can get by without them. 
Yeah. Another thing too, that I firmly believe, and I've seen it said, you know, it's not a technical issue. It's a social issue when it comes to DGRs. And I'm a very passionate believer that that social issue is coming from anti-nuclear groups who use a lack of solution for the waste as their reasoning behind not wanting nuclear to expand. So they fight DGRs because that would be a solution and they don't want a solution because that obviously affects their livelihood, right? We have anti-nuclear activists who literally make their living off of fighting nuclear. So if that there's no solution to the waste goes away, that's a huge talking point for them. So they don't want a solution. They don't care if this is safe. They just don't want it. I think you've put your finger on a very important issue that they know that well that you know it, it, it's emotive and while they can raise that point they can significantly interfere with any future development of nuclear power and so this is an important battleground for them to uh to to try and prevent a because they know they know that once a repository is built everybody will forget about it right it will just go about its normal business and it will never be a, well, when I say it will never be a problem to anyone, some people are going to see some development in that region, which they may consider to be good or they may consider to be bad, depending upon their view. And, and that, that's true of absolutely everything mankind does, right? Yeah. So it's no different from that point of view. So number three. Any man-made radioactivity making it to the surface will harm whatever organisms exist at that time, and no level of leakage is acceptable. Yeah, so that that's just trying to sort of, again, go back to the point that it, it's not something happening, it's whether or not it has a consequence. So, um, you know, the, the people are absolutely terrified of plutonium, and you know, this never existed on the planet before, and all that kind of argument comes out. It's not strictly true because the planet had its own natural nuclear reactors that produced plutonium way before we discovered. But, but the other thing is, nothing to do with the nuclear power industry. Blasted plutonium all over the planet when we did the bomb tests. And the consequence is zilch, right? So it's not the fact that it exists. It's whether the quantity makes any difference. So right. kind of observe that, you know, if, if you get some leakage from the repository, you know, one, it's going to be very slow. It's then going to be very diluted because it's, it's a three dimensional space yep. that it's going out to. At some point, many, 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 many years in the future, some of it might make it to the geosphere. And, and I stress the word might because I suspect it won't. But even if it did, would it be in a noticeable quantity? Would it make a difference to anything? Actually leads us really nicely into point number four, that if the repository fails, there will, in a society like the one we have today, be used fuel lying on the surface, causing radiation sickness and rapid death to anything nearby, including humans. That's a heavy, it's a heavy myth on that one. But, that, but that's what people have in their mind, isn't it? They, yeah. they're, not, they're not thinking about what will actually happen, which is over a period of time, the water that is moving, if we say glacially slowly, then that is exaggerating the speed by 
thousands of orders of magnitude, and the water is moving very, very slowly in the deep rock. Um, it's got to contact, it's got to make its way through the deep rock, it's got to make its way through the clay, it's got to contact the metal surface, it's got to corrode the metal surface, it's got to corrode the body of the container, it's got to contact the used fuel, it's got to dissolve the used fuel, and then it's got to reverse the process on the way out. So, you know, that's the reality of the, of the potential challenge. So it's going to take a very, very long time. And when it does it, it will be happening in very, very small quantities. But people have it in their mind that somehow this is going to become an instantaneous danger. So I'm saying, even in the circumstance where it did become an instantaneous danger, if, if your worst fears were realized, and for some reason the repository did something impossible and blew up and sprayed used fuel all over the place, we could fix it. Mm -hmm. And let's just be clear. Not the end of the world. It is impossible for the DGR to blow up. It, it is impossible for the DGR to blow up, right? There isn't a mechanism by which that can say, we, we just need to make sure we're clear about that. But I'm trying to address the fear that people have that if it did, that somehow the world would end and say, actually, the world wouldn't end. It would be a bit of a yeah. bit, bit of um, attack in the region, and, but we can it. And interesting when you talk about the water ingress and then corrosion and then water egress. I've done quick math based on the numbers I have available to me right now. And for water to infiltrate the DGR, some of these numbers might be off a little bit. I'm doing off the top of my head. To saturate the DGR, they estimate like 5,000 years. And then to corrode through the copper, this is negating the bentonite clay. Corrode through the copper takes 2 million years at least. And then, you know, just to dissolve through the zircaloid, to dissolve the fuel pellets, and then migrate out just one meter in the rock surrounding is at least 5 million years total for that to happen. So we're looking at 5 million years from now at water traveling a meter potentially. Right. And it gets to the point where like 5 million years from now, like literally 5 million years from now. One of the challenges of dealing with DGRs is, is people work on their lived experience, right? Because it's the only experience they've lived. So there, there is a, a kind of an assumption that in 5 million years time, the planet is going to look exactly the same as it does today, even though, even though we know it won't, right? So, yeah. you know, one, one of the other things I love about your water people is to say it mustn't be on the sides of the Great Lakes. And I'm going, can you tell me where the Great Lakes are going to be in 5 million years time? Yeah, that's a good point. You know, because it doesn't work that way, guys. The world, the world yeah. right? which is which is one of my biggest problems too about rolling stewardship. You know, is that that fuel will stay on the lake shore, and who knows what's going to happen in five million years time on the surface? At least we know rock has been stable for billions of years. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's a that's a very very important point to make. Um, yeah. That, yeah. Actually, putting in deep rock, but. But going back to your, the fact that, you know, we have to deal with the fact that because people are using their lived experience, they are going to worry that in five million years time, that the, the radioactive materials will have started escaping from the repository. Now, you said a meter, so that's not got to the geosphere, right? Yeah. But I think a more fundamental point is it will be diluted. It's not going to come out as a, as a pellet. It's not, the water's not going to penetrate in 
and then grab hold of a pallet and pull a pallet to the surface. It's going to, it's going to be um, diluted into the whole mass of rock all the way around it. Yeah. So some of it's going to go down. Yep. Depending upon the water flow, some of it's going to go down. Some of it will, but all of it will spread out. Okay. And one of the factors, so, so it will be diluted. So by the time it has a pathway to the surface, it could just be irrelevant anyway. So, you know, even if you do care about what happens in five million years' time, and even if it did make it to the surface in five million years' time, would it be in a quantity that makes any difference? Right. Yeah, and that's not even including things like radionuclides binding to different minerals in the rocks and which binding is to the clay. Which is a very important point, because we know from the reactors, the natural reactors that operated in the world, they were almost designed to be exactly the opposite of a DGR, in that they were in cracked rock through which water was flowing at a great rate. We know this because that's how they were able to operate. The water would flow in, um, start the nuclear reaction, and then the nuclear reaction would boil it off. And then if the nuclear reaction would calm down, and then more, more water would flow in. So that is the worst possible scenario for storage of used fuel. And yet it went nowhere. Because right. it, it all bound immediately to the rock that was close by and never made it to the surface. Yeah, those natural reactors are really good analog, I think, for what we can expect to happen, which kind of leads us nicely also into question number five, that other than used fuel, we are leaving the world in a pristine state for whatever organisms follow us, and used fuel has some standing that is different from anything else we have ever done. Yeah, so I, I, this was trying to address the fact that because people can differentiate used fuel because it has a half-life, they start going, oh, you know, and applying rules that don't apply to anything else, right? So... You know, we handle lots of toxic materials. They're handled in the biosphere. We know how to handle them. A lot of them are disposed in the biosphere. Why do we have this separate rule book for, for used fuel? We should be applying the same principles and applying the same concerns to used fuel as we do to everything else. And this idea that, that, that it has to be perfect is not something that we apply to anything else. Like, you know, the, the windmills that, that are all, all around me where I live here, they contain toxic materials. And in all probability, at the end of the day, they will be allowed to fall down and rot in the field. Mm -hmm. It's just like solar panels, right? It's the same It's the same thing. Solar panels presently go to landfills. Yep. Um, and, and, and there's toxic materials involved there. And yet we don't worry about them. It is, was trying to, to focus on this. You know, why are we why are we differentiating? Why why don't we just apply the same rules that we apply to everything else? Again, not trying to trivialize it. We still have to do it right, but just yeah. to put it in context. Yeah, and it shouldn't be any different. I'm of the opinion, and I I voice it quite a bit. Is I'm not, and you're probably the same. I'm not ever trying to trivialize it. I'm trying to be rational. Yes. This can be dangerous, but it can also be safe, right? We right. can can be dangerous and safe at the same time. Those things can go together, um, which leads us to the to the next 
the next point. So um, I, I talk a lot about, going back to that point, um, it's not just about facts, which scientists tend to try and fall back and say, well, if people understood the facts, then they would be more supportive. Um, I say it's not, it's not about the facts, it's about the facts in context. So you, you can't just look at what happens. You have to look at what happens if you don't do the thing. Right, yeah. Uh, so number six is, if the radioactivity escapes from the repository, it will poison the whole world and all life will end, which I think is an interesting one to talk about a little bit because we have that, um, this DGR is going to poison our water narrative going on. So I think this is an important one. We've kind of already touched on it a bit, but... Yeah. Yeah, again, it, it's just trying to contextualize the fact that, um, you know, the world is a big place. So, um, if, if, uh, if all of the worst things happen and the worst things that people could imagine, you might have a little patch of the earth that is on, is not able to be occupied, but the rest of the world would, would, would just be fine. And I can't remember whether it's in this article or in other articles where I point out that nature already does that. Like, um, most of the earth we can't live in because it's covered in water. Yeah. Yep. Um, but there are, that's, that's a sort of, that trivializes it a little bit, I'd say, to be kind of fun, but also to get people thinking. But there are, there are salt pads where no life exists. There are, um, regions where the, uh, the concentration of certain pollutants are so, uh, so high that if you, well, sulfur caves that will kill you. There, there are already places on the earth that are naturally so toxic. And the way that we deal with them is we don't live there. Right. right. So even if all the worst things happen, and, and we've already talked about the fact that they can't, but even if all of the worst things happen, it would just be a little bit of damage to a little patch of the earth that, that already has those things happening. Right? Yeah, and I I always, I can't help but wonder, you know, especially when we're looking at, okay, protect the water. How How is it a valid argument to leave the fuel where it is? They, they as we've discussed before, they are not endeavoring to protect the water. They are endeavoring to use emotive arguments to fight a immunity campaign. Yeah, and yeah, it's 100% accurate. They have no interest whatsoever in protecting water. And the water is not going to be, the water that they're talking about is never going to be contaminated. Which leads really nicely actually into point number seven, that because something bad can happen, it will happen. I have people all the time that say, we don't know what's going to happen and this could happen, so we need to plan for it happening. Yeah, and, that, and that's going back to, to what I was talking about in, in the introduction, in, in that they take the worst case, the worst case, the worst case, the worst case, and so they add all that up. And you get a scenario that is a possibility. But then if you look at all of the, the things behind that, that led to that, they are all very unlikely because they're all the worst case adding yeah. up in the extreme. So, so the argument is, you know, people will then take the number that are produced by the scientists and say, you know, this is going to happen. And I'm going, no, because there are 99 billion ways that that isn't going to happen that you are mm -hmm. ignoring. So yeah, yeah. It's just trying to contextualize the fact that just because you end up with a number doesn't mean that that number is what's going to. Yeah. Um, 
like interesting comparison there is um, what happened at Fukushima Daiichi, right? With the with the tsunami, people will bring up Fukushima as a reason to not have a DGR, and rational people that I know will say, "When's the last time we had a humongous earthquake and tsunami in Ontario? When did that happen?" It's virtually impossible, I would say, to have happened in what we know as society today. But that's the comparisons that are being made. Yeah, yeah. And the other part of that is so what, right? So, um, you know, if there was an earthquake, there might be damage to the deep rock. But that doesn't automatically lead to a problem at the surface. If there was a tsunami on Lake Huron, I would much prefer to have my used fuel buried in a DGR than sitting on the banks of it. Amen. Um, so, so if that's your worry, you should be supporting the DGR. Yeah, a hundred percent. Not gonna happen, right? Yeah. So then the last, the last three here are uh, kind of, or well, they're all ones that I talk about all the time, which is why this article really resonated with me. Um, but number eight is anyone accidentally entering the repository will die instantly. Yeah, so people, people, you know, again, because they've had all their fears built up that this must be really, really dangerous stuff, they respond as though anybody entering the repository is going to, to be at immediate risk. Then you'll see some stuff which I, I actually think is quite unhelpful about how we mark the repository to make sure that nobody enters it. Um, and, and we could talk a little bit about how that might happen and how realistic that scenario is. But um, the, the fact is that people are going to deliver the used fuel into the repository. And that is a very clear demonstration of the fact that even if accidentally you walked into the repository after it had been closed, you wouldn't necessarily be at any risk. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, if there has been some decay in the repository or whatever, because you've left it that long and then you re-enter, then you're not necessarily going to immediately contact used fuel, you might just be exposed to some contamination. So, you know, these these fictitious people that somehow have developed the ability to mine 500 meters underground into rock that has no value that we can attribute it to today. Um, So they've discovered some other value in this rock that's made it worth their while to mine and they have the capability to mine, but they haven't in, they haven't discovered radioactivity yet, and they're not carrying radiation meters. So like, this is some very very strange society that mm-hmm. we have to uh, have in mind to to perceive that scenario as practical. But even then, they would actually have to go into the used fuel containers. There might be a clue there not to do that, like the yep. fact that in a container might be a clue. Um, and in order to contact the planets. Otherwise, there's shielding between them and humans yep. too that, that means that they could wander around quite happily. Yeah, I'm, I'm a firm believer that if, if someone or some society in the future is intruding on to the DGR, it's not going to be accidental. And they're probably going to do it because of the fuel being down there. And if they're doing it for the sake of getting the fuel, they're going to be well aware of radiation. You know, they're going to know how to protect themselves. It, it, it is almost inconceivable that they couldn't be, isn't it? Yeah, and 
in terms of marking a DGR, I am a firm believer and we shouldn't bother. Um, I feel like that's just a big red heron for people to be like, oh, what's down there? We should go look. And, you know, the, the other observation that I make when I'm trying to confirm is that whatever that society is might just have wiped humans out. Yeah. Because it's clearly not us that's doing that. Yeah, so well, and that's the thing, who knows, right? These, who knows? These things may not have been our friends. We might have just spent the last hundred years trying to fight whatever it is off in order yeah. to preserve our existence and yeah. been killing them in their thousands, right? Because mm-hmm. uh, that's, that's how, you know, again, I'm not trying to trivialize it, but that's how bizarre that scenario is, right? Yeah, trying yeah, to for sure. Out, contextualize that scenario and say, it's bizarre. Number nine is one that we've actually been talking about a little bit lately in regards to like extended monitoring and things like that. So if we put stuff underground and something goes wrong, we won't be able to fix the problem. Yeah. So again, you know, people, people work on these worst case scenarios. Okay. We got, we got it wrong and it does suddenly start thinking, what are we going to do? Well, actually we, we, we handle radioactive materials all the time. Um, we clearly demonstrated our ability to mine at depth because we put it there in the first place. Uh, if we needed to go and fix it, huge economic problem, but uh, technically we'd be able to do it. That almost goes together with point number 10, so I'll just bring that up now and we can talk about it at the same time. There's no point in building repositories because we're going to use the fuel anyway, and while it's on the surface, we can keep it safe, but if something goes wrong underground, we can't, which is kind of a blend of, of number nine with uh, retrievability. What I was trying to get at in this one is to deal with the argument that people have that says, you know, we should keep it on the surface in order to reprocess it and use it for energy production. And, and that argument is made by people in the nuclear industry as well as by anti-nuclear campaigners that just see it as a way of presenting the Preventing the problem from being the issue from being dealt with. Right? Mm-hmm. So it feeds, it feeds their, their dialogue, um, and it's fed to them by, by the, uh, by the nuclear industry itself. But you just have to look at, you know, if we're, if we're using, um, 3% of the energy, so you've got 97% of it in there, and then we've got an awful lot of energy involved, which we're not going to yeah. have used up anytime soon. So, um, because we don't know how long society is going to last, let's get the DGR built. Let's start putting it in there. <coughs> if we decide we need it, we can get it back out of it, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I do find ironically, it, it's funny because the DGR concept is almost a two-layer battle. You know, there's the anti-nuclear, we don't need, this isn't safe um, argument. And then there's the people within the nuclear industry who are also fighting themselves. I don't know if they have actually thought through the process of that they're shooting the nuclear industry in the foot by fighting against the DGR from this, I still call it a fairy tale. I know that it's closer than it's ever been to reusing fuel, but it's not happening yet. You know, and this, oh, new reactors are going to use the spent fuel, which is fine, but are these anti-nuclear activists going to just let you walk in and reprocess fuel and build your SMRs? I think we've seen lately, you know, how anti-nuclear groups are now fighting against SMRs because it's not practical, you know, and I think rather than rather than those people who are researching and supporting SMRs, which is a great technology, they also should be 
helping with the DGR concept rather than fighting it. You know, because they're not doing themselves any favors by saying, oh, we don't need a DGR, we need to do this instead. It's dividing the nuclear community. And I very much believe we're stronger together. Yeah. And, and, and I, so my point is, I don't think it needs to be divided because the two things are consistent with each other, right? I'm very excited by some of the concepts for reprocessing and reusing and the opportunity not to consign stuff to the DGR. Um, even if you built it, putting stuff in it is expensive. It takes yeah. time, takes people, takes equipment, it's expensive. So if we can avoid that, that's great. The reason that I think they're consistent is just the time steps. There is so much energy available to us because we have used so little of the energy available in each fuel world that we have plenty of the stuff. We are still going to need a DGR, even if we go the repro right. reprocessing and reuse route. Yeah. So the two are consistent. They don't need to fight each other. Mm -hmm. Some people seem to have it in their head that in order to um, make the case for recycling, they have to demonstrate that as a result, you don't need the DGR. And it's, it's, it's unhelpful and it's not correct. Yeah, and I, I always point out also that the reprocessing and recycling still produces intermediate level waste, which by IAEA standards should be stored in a DGR. So no matter what, even if we are going to reprocess, we need a DGR somewhere yeah. for that waste. Yeah, so there's an issue that the industry should not be fighting itself on um, because you need the DGR anyway. We should all get behind it and say, yeah, we need this. We might do the other as well, and that would be better. We've got our, a solution in place. We know it's, it's okay. If we can do something better, that's great. Time will tell. I, I wanted to observe that actually when, when it says 10 reasons, I actually wrote 11 articles following the introduction. I'm a huge Spinal Tap fan, and therefore <laughs> volume always has to be turned up to 11 when you have when you have an amplifier with only 10 on it. So, and the 11th is about making the case for where, where we started this this um, discussion, which is making the case to say we should do it. Right? We we have a moral obligation to do it. We have discussed it with the Canadian people, and they have decided it's the right thing to do. We are the people that, that, that benefited from using this fuel. We are the people that have a moral responsibility to do it. A minister should be proud to stand up and say, I have made a decision. This is where we're going to do it. We're going to get it done. It's the right thing to do. Discussion over. And just have it done, right? Yeah, and, I, I, I completely I'm, agree. I find the flip-flopping of the government and the flip-flopping of leadership doesn't do any favors for anyone it doesn't help solve the issue it doesn't help mitigate the perceived issues it doesn't help to do any of that you know somebody needs to eventually just stand up and say yep this is what we need to do we're doing it and that's that's almost what i fear the most is not so much a community saying yes or no or not having a community being willing i worry more about down the road the government just stepping in and saying yep here, that's where it's going to go. I feel like then the community will lose all of its bargaining power and it's just going to be forced into a situation. Um, and depending who's in power, that's not, you know, that's not an unheard of thing. Like, if we can get a leader that's quite questionable, we've seen it happen in the world, 
you know, that's just going to say, I don't care. You can go there. They can deal with it. And that would be unfortunate. That's a very good point. And, you know, the NWMO and the nuclear industry have have been quite radical in saying that we are are going to seek a willing community and work with them to make it a project that they are proud of. Um, Were this a road or a hospital or anything else that mankind decided it needed, we'd just do it. Right? Or a factory. You'd just have it built in the backyard. You would have no choice. Right. Yeah. So so this is quite a socially innovative approach. Yeah. And a luxury that other people don't get afforded. So this is a, a real genuine attempt to do exactly as this would you've done that, to give people a choice mm-hmm. and work with them to make it a project that they're proud of. So Yeah, and, and I feel like that um you know, seeking a willing host, it enables the host community to negotiate and to lay down some terms of their own. What advice would you give to someone who's undecided or unsure about the project? So I, I think this, you know, I mean, the, the obvious is find out. In finding out, don't take anything that is said by either side as read, right? So it's worth investigating and checking the details. Make sure that you understand not just the facts, but the context. So, you know, not just what's happening, but what the consequences are of it not happening. And does it really, does it really make a difference? Or is this, are you being presented with a dihydrogen monoxide argument that says, you know, gets you scared because it quotes a whole lot of facts that are correct. But when you stand back from it, you say, well, oh, hang on, that doesn't make a difference. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, look at the context. Don't be fooled by the implied bias that's going on. Watch for it, and distrust people that are using it, because because they are doing it deliberately to corrupt your understanding of the situation, and that that should set off some alarm bells when you see that happen. So you know journalists that refer to it as a dump, they are corrupting the story. They can't be trusted. Right? Um, and, and, you know, the argument that, well, that helps people understand is not true because it helps them understand something that is completely different to what has been proposed. And that is not helping someone understand. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really, um, I really appreciate it. And uh, we'll have to maybe do it again. Great. Well, I, it's a, I, I want to stress again. I don't know whether any of the approaches that I've taken are right or what effect that they have. I just think that um, we need to start putting these things in, into context to help people understand better what the consequences of what's been proposed might be. Thanks so much, Neil. Great. Glad to be been help. Awesome. Thanks. Cheers, then. Bye. And that's it for this episode of Willing to Listen South Bruce Proud. I look forward to further investigating Canada's plan for spent nuclear fuel along with all of you. Thanks so much for joining me. And remember, we don't have to agree on anything to be kind to one another. (laughs) 